Welcome to From the Valley Podcast. This is a Friday afternoon, the 11th of January 2019. We're all back at work here uh, at Confidential Tax and Business Services and uh, uh, welcome, welcome along and we've got a, a very interesting podcast guest today with a, a very strong f- financial background in uh, looking after clients' uh, share portfolios and superannuation uh, and general sort of uh, financial advice. Uh, welcome along, Jeff Cumnick. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. Yeah, Jeff uh, is from uh, works at Morgan's, which is next door to Confidential Tax and Business Services. Um, so, Jeff, uh, what we usually do with these podcasts is find a bit about a bit about your background, uh, just so we can sort of form a bit of a uh, give give the listeners a bit of a view of where you sort of came from. So, uh, my understanding is um, you obviously weren't born here in Brisbane, but uh, uh, an area in New South Wales or Victoria. Can you sort of start where you were born? Yeah, sure. Um, I basically come from three states, Tim. I've been in. Uh I was born in Wangaratta, which is in Victoria, uh, and the only reason I was born there was because they didn't have a hospital in Myrtleford. Um, and um, as a six-year-old, we moved to Albury, which is right on the New South Wales-Victorian border. So uh, been in, in Queensland for well, a long time now, um, and certainly based in Brisbane um, for, for most of that time. Excellent. And... Um how did you find sort of growing up in Albury? Um, what sort of what was your family like, and what did your sort of dad do for a living, uh, and that sort of thing? Yeah, sure. Dad was um, um, a bit of an entrepreneur, I guess. He um, uh, came from being an uh, an RAAF uh, cadet um, and became the um, local accountant in Myrtleford. Uh, he then moved to Albury and became the general manager for a house building company, and then. Uh, turned into a property developer and then bought a car sales yard, um, then became a, a, a residential real estate agent and a commercial real estate agent and finally finished uh, his career the last 15 years as a, uh, a, a furniture um, retailer. So. so a bit of everything for your father and yep. uh, uh, brothers and sisters, you had... Uh... Yeah, my, my brother's 14 months older um, and my sister's about five years younger. Um, I guess before uh, little sis arrived, um, uh, my brother and I were pretty much the tearaway twins. We're always uh, uh, close to trouble, if not uh, at the centre of it. Um, but uh, did you used to get sort of many sort of uh, like little fights as kids? Like you obviously being in that close uh, in age. I mean, me and my brother sometimes would get in, into, you know, I guess, a few fights here and there. Were there many arguments growing up? Oh, we we had a couple, but uh, they never lasted long. Yeah. Um, you know, we used to uh, have a dust up every every now and then, but uh, usually the referee stepped in and sorted that out, and we were great mates again. So, you know, everywhere we went, we you know certainly in those early years, we we did everything together and. Uh, as I say, trouble just seemed to follow us. It was fantastic. And what, what does your so what does your brother? Where does he live now? He... He's he's on the Gold Coast along with the rest of the family. Uh, he's actually a uh, um, a partner in a law firm down the Gold okay. Coast. So he's done very well. Excellent. Yep. Yep. Um, and what sort of sports did you enjoy uh, following uh, when you were sort of uh, growing up? And what did you end up uh, participating in as well? Well, um, I basically um, was always happy to have a crack at anything. So I basically played. Uh, soccer in, in primary school and a bit of cricket um, in early secondary school I basically played uh, cricket played AFL um, I've always in fact by the time I was um, 
12 years old. I was five foot 11 and three quarters, so I didn't grow much after that, but uh, always played in the ruck and was pretty handy on the basketball court. Um, moved to Queensland and um, played some rugby union and uh, ended up in a, a couple of rowing crews, which was which was great fun as well. So that's uh, fairly sporty, and your brother, he was fairly sporty, was he? Yeah, he was um, particularly good at cricket, but um, he, he basically played the same kinds of sports. Um, mm. And he was very much a... Uh, uh, a bowler for cricket he, he'd basically uh, left arm fast and really rip one in although everything else he did is right-handed so um, a little bit unusual yeah so um, that's interesting dynamic when you've got sort of right right hand left hand right foot left foot um, it's it's not it's not always uh, the same for everybody um, what uh, what sort of teams do you sort of barrack for in, in uh, AF, firstly AFL have you got is there, you've got an AFL team yeah look I, I, I basically had a couple of favorite teams um, certainly I went through patches where I was a um, um, a South Melbourne supporter um, then kind That's of probably before they became the Sydney Swans yeah you? well it, it certainly was Um then um, probably a bit of an allegiance to, to Hawthorne, which is, of course, now um, your home hometown or old home, hometown, Tasmania. Yeah, so, well, Hawthorne, most of the, they do play some games in, in Launceston, actually, yeah. Yeah. But I don't like Launceston. I mean, I don't like Hawthorne. Yeah. Um, I know my brother, uh, Nicholas, barracks for them. But Yeah. And Rugby Union? Well, the, the, the AFL, I also had a bit of a passion for Carlton. Okay. Um, and... Um, the, the family allegiance lies with St Kilda, so I'd be remiss if I didn't say St Kilda was probably reasonably close to my heart, as, as well as the Brisbane Lions in the current current form of the game. Yep. Um, in um, rugby rugby um, circles, mm-hmm. um, obviously the Reds and the Wallabies. Yep. Um, in the, the, the league league stakes, um, probably Broncos closely followed by the Cowboys. Yeah, definitely. It's a Queensland... So, uh, yep. Do you consider yourself a Queensland? You've been here that long. Absolutely, um, you know Maroons through pretty, and through. Yeah. And well, if you, yeah, so you've probably been here for quite a while. So when did you first sort of uh, decide that? I guess finance was where you wanted sort of wanted to take your career. Was it fairly sort of in your teenage years, or did it take a little little bit of time before you you said, well, I know this is for me. Yeah, no, I always had a, a, a passion for, um, for for maths. I was um, reasonably good at that. So, um, in fact, um, my last couple of years at school was um, kind of a maths one, maths two, chemistry, physics, um, economics, and and uh, English. And that was that was my, my set of six. So certainly, maths one and maths two were the the strong points, and physics wasn't bad either. Um, so yeah, certainly always had a passion for. Um, money. Uh, in fact, my brother and I, um, as I think uh, he was, and back in those days, it was um, probably uh, okay to get away with. Um, you, certainly under current rules, you need to be 18. And, and let's say we were not exactly 18 when we made our first share in investment. And uh, we did that together. And uh, uh, some years later, cashed them in for a, for a tidy profit. And my wife bought a, a washing machine. So there you go. Excellent. Um, yeah, so, and I guess you went to university at QUT, did you? Or? Uh, UQ. UQ, sorry, UQ. Yeah, um, yeah and that was, a, that was a bit of a, uh, a strange ending. I, um, I did two years of a three-year commerce degree and uh, ultimately resolved that I did not want to be an accountant, which was where that was kind of heading. Um, 
I'd actually worked at the uh, the public bar at the Brook Hotel for for a couple of years, um, which is at Mitchelton. Um, so I'd always worked my way through uni. I'd had uh, kind of a little bit of uh, uh, financial backing and ended up with a couple of other jobs and gave the uni away. And um, you know that's that's something that uh, I'd absolutely regret. But uh, that's what it was, and um, you know I kind of. You're saying so? So you sort of completed two years before giving it away? Or yeah, yeah. I didn't finish. I, I packed it, it in. Yeah. yeah, I walked away. Um, as I say, I shouldn't have done that. Um, but being probably a bit uh, young, naive, and certainly impetuous, that's that's mm. that's what happened. So, but um, and then, but did you do sort of? How did then you sort of get qualified to become a financial planner back in the old day? In the in those days. Well, back in back in the in the olden days, and, and bear in mind, I've been in the industry since. Uh, 1983 so that's about 35 years um, back in those early days there, there was no financial planners as such um, I went to work for a company that was called Australian Fixed Trusts now they were the the pioneers of the unit trust industry um, bear in mind they were called unit trusts back then not managed funds as they are now um, so I worked there for about five and a half years and that's that was kind of my um, first career job. So I started out as the mail boy. Um, we had a team here in the in the Brisbane State Office of about a dozen people. Um, so um, after about two years, I'd uh, basically was appointed as the as the supervisor. So I then had about five people reporting to me, and uh, about a year and a half after that, I was appointed the the state administration manager. So. Basically, I was um, working alongside the, 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 the state manager and, um, yeah, that was where I started advising clients. By 1985, I was basically um, giving clients um, kind of head office support um, in terms of um, I've got this fund and what should I do? Uh, there wasn't a lot of regulation back then, of course. Um, so next job um, is basically when it got serious, and that's that's basically when I started, or before I started Morgan's at Morgan's um, in 1989. So I did what was called a an Australian Certified Investment Planner. Now that's a qualification that's no longer recognised, but yeah. it was basically a, a TAFE um, style um, course. Um, and then, um, obviously, there's been other other um, educational things that I've been required to do along the way yeah. um, through financial services reform in 2003, where uh, with the stroke of the, the legislator's pen, um, nobody was qualified anymore, um, and we all had to basically go back to school. Um, so again, uh, completed the the next industry requirement and it looks like in uh, another five years time we'll be going through that same process again with um with fascia but that's a that's a whole other story yeah it definitely is um but obviously you you've been a, you've obviously seen quite a lot then i guess um being you know being in that sort of role for quite some time and then starting with morgan's um in 1988 mm. so 30 years uh, at least or is it uh 30, 30, 30 years in uh, april yeah, thirty years in, in April. Yeah. So that's 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 obviously um, you've seen a lot, I guess, in that, in that sort of period of time. I mean, with Hawke as the Prime Minister and then Keating, um, what were those sort of days like? Uh, being a financial advisor and having to advise clients where you had recession, where you had all these, other, where you had everything sort of going on. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting you asked that question. I was, I was thinking about that um, uh, this morning. Um, you know, if you go back through um, those times up until about 10 years ago, uh, politics didn't play such a big role in um, um, the kind of um, how ec- markets were performing or, or, or consumer confidence, I yeah. suppose. Um, you know, certainly through the the, the Hawke, um, Keating, and, and Howard eras, uh, there was a, a genu- genuine kind of confidence that the guys in charge were actually in charge and doing a reasonably good job. Um, I couldn't say that I've got that feeling of the last decade. Yeah. Uh, the last decade in, in Australian politics, in my opinion, has been but a that makes, debacle. That makes sense. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that does make sense. So even though we had these financial hard times, you know, back in the early 90s, uh, you know, obviously it, this, everything still played out how it should. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a, a stack of regulations that obviously came through, I think, um, from, you know, uh, the, the introduction of compulsory super in about yeah. 1993 through till about uh, 2008, there was about 120, 130 different changes of, of regulations that came through. And you might you might remember some of the fun times with things like RBLs or reasonable benefits yes, limits, yeah. which was just crazy stuff. Mm. Um, and you know, every time there's a, a new uh, piece of legislation, there's some kind of grandfathering or some kind of non-retrospective nature about it, and it's uh, just got more and more complex as we've, as the years have, have gone by. So, what do you think? Um, you're obviously very good at maths, but you obviously over the time with Morgan's, I mean, it wouldn't. Have, how long did it take you to sort of get into the role of actually being the branch manager? That's you know. Okay, when I when I first started at Morgan's, I I basically uh, came in on a, a short term contract. In fact, a, a three month contract. Um, my previous uh, uh, boss at uh, AFT, became, who was the state manager, basically uh, took on the role as general manager of financial planning at uh, at Morgan's and said. Um, yeah, um, I need to have somebody come and do a do a job for me, and he chose me. Um, he left, and I stayed. Um, but we, in that process, we basically uh, bought um, a platform that was called um, MPS or Managed Portfolio Service, which is now now known as the Morgan's Wealth Plus uh, platform. So my role was basically start that. Um, I hired two um, ladies to assist, so we were staff of three. Um, had no clients, but had some ideas as about how we could uh, hang some pretty archaic technology of the time um, off a single computer um, into a service for clients. Um, as the as the the next twenty years rolled by, we basically built this um, platform into to something that uh, uh, when I when I left um, in two thousand and eight um, had about eleven thousand clients, uh, five billion dollars of funds under advice, and and uh, a pretty substantial uh, revenue and and profitable um, kind of outcome. So uh, and fifty odd staff. So. Um, that was my beginning, but during that process, um, I'd, I'd always maintained that um, you know there's there's no way to understand what a client wants or what a client expects in terms of outcomes um, unless you're actually talking to a client. Um, you know you can't you, there's, you can make lots of assessments and lots of judgments, um, 
based on anecdotal evidence. Um, so I always had a client base uh, throughout that 20 years. Yeah, so I mean, face-to-face is obviously very important for a relationship in, yep. in your industry, in most industries. Yep. Um, it's it's very important to, to have that and build that relationship. So um, you, you would probably have, I'm sure you would have some fairly long-standing clients that have been oh, taking absolutely. your advice for, for more than, you know, 20 30 years or something absolutely um you know i've got clients that i've um with morgans um that i've had since you know virtually um day one and they've they've pretty much been um the start of my my career as um um, a a retail advisor so that prior um, experience was very much in a wholesale kind of sense so most of my customers were actually people like me uh, retail client advisors um Moving in to be one of those retail uh, financial advisors um, full time was a was a, a leap of faith. Bear in mind that was uh, June two thousand and eight, just as the whole world started to to crumble and the GFC unfolded, and uh, we hit the depths of recession. Um, although it was a pretty shallow recession um, back in March two thousand and nine. So, um, you know that was a good grounding to say um, keep it real. Um, it was uh, you know probably an extension I'd, I'd actually come through 87 and uh, the 87 and 91 um, were, were interesting kind of times in investment markets and with managed funds and um, freezing freezing of funds and estate mortgages and um, all of those kinds of uh, calamities that that unfolded during those times so I guess is anybody that you sort of looked up to over the years that have sort of helped your career along, Jeff, uh, like ment- any particular mentors that come to mind or is there any situations that you said, well, this is the reason I'm doing this? Yeah, look, the probably um, two of my main mentors um, uh, basically come from my days at AFT. Um, one was the state manager and the, the other one was the, the, the state administration manager who I took over from. Um, he transferred to uh, within the same company to Sydney. So um, they've basically um, been guys that I've had tremendous respect for, uh, been both pretty successful in their own own businesses in their own ways. Um, and we catch up um, for, for lunch at least um, once or twice a year um, and have done for uh, 20 plus years. Mm, so, excellent. Mm. What do you find the biggest challenge to you at the moment? Is it actually trying to understand what's happening in the market itself or do you think that you've been around long enough, you, you, you've seen what the market's done over a long period of time, I've got an understanding, of, I've got a strong understanding of what's going on here, I don't need to continually reinvent the wheel. Um, yeah, look, great great question and it's, it's one that I think, um, you know, if you are new to, to, to share markets and investment markets and uh, investing funds or um, running a self-managed super fund, any of those kinds of things, it's so easy to be distracted by all the, the trees um, and the noise um, and lose sight of the forest. Now, what I mean by that is, you know, there's always going to be things happening in the world. Uh, there's always going to be stuff that's in the news headlines. There's always going to be a headline. If the market goes down by 50 points, the, the headline's going to read, you know, share market's down by $5 billion in a day. Um, you never read the headlines that says it's up $5 billion in a day. But being distracted by um, market movements um, 
is is basically um, a distraction and it's something that I try and coach my clients not to be too concerned about. Um, if there's major influences or major impacts, um, they're going to shift a market. Unfortunately, these days, they'll shift it in a, in a heartbeat. Uh, there's very little reaction time um, for uh, individual company news. Um, certainly, if there's, there's uh, something like um, uh, a desert storm, which was um, Iraq in, in 1991, um, you would have had no time to, to make any kind of move in or out of the market. Um, on the basis of that news and, and it's even more true today because the news is just so instant and mm. information is just so instant <clears throat> yeah definitely technology has obviously evolved over time and and certainly in in every industry including including your industry um, do you sort of keep up to date with different um, technologies that are out there that, that help you with your job do the, is there much change in you know, soft, what software providers are coming up with, in, you know, for tools, uh, or, or has that fairly much been the same for a while? Yeah, look, uh, I think in terms of technology, certainly um, from the Morgan's um, business perspective, um, the chess settlement system's been around since 1995. Um, the, the back-end technology has not changed significantly, although is, there is a, a move by the ASX to blockchain technology, um, although that project, I think, just got pushed back by a year or two. Um, certainly in terms of uh, the client-facing stuff, there's been massive moves in terms of um, our website interaction. Uh, we're actually pretty, pretty, at the, pretty much at the forefront of uh, website interaction. Uh, in terms of our uh, broker and advice back office systems. Um, we've probably, to my knowledge, uh, got one of the best um, CRM systems in the marketplace. Um, and that's not just CRM in terms of um, contact management, that's in terms of um, client activities um, and um, holdings, uh, etc. So, you know, we've big big changes in terms of the market information that's basically been on a pretty steady path it, uh, yeah. as time goes past we all get uh, more and more um, uh, um, tools delivered to us and it's just a question of how, how quickly we can turn them into a part of our armory and predicting what's going to happen in the future of the market that's always uh, it's always a very difficult exercise even for a someone as seasoned as yourself who who knows the market so well or has seen the market you know history and knows the history in it in, in, in it in your head as to what's happened in the past and what's what's happening out there um what do you see sort of happening over the 2018 year knowing that there's another election year what's the how's that going to affect the market first yeah. of all do you think? yeah 20 2019 is is, is certainly or 2019 yeah, yeah it's certainly going to be an interesting interesting year they all are um, you know, I, I, in terms of uh, predicting what exactly is going to happen in the market is, is absolutely fraught with danger. And if we, we lay this um, down today and, and sure, as, sure as eggs, it'll be all different tomorrow. But um, in terms of uh, what do I expect 20, 2019 to look like, certainly um, we do have a, an election coming up and that... that has the um, uh, the likely outcome of an ALP victory, um, and I think that's 
you know, in terms of the betting markets and and the pundits, they say 80 or 90 percent um, ALP victory almost assured, which which is concerning from the uh, three key ALP policies. Um, which are around uh, the non-refundability of imputation credits, which is a big one. That's a huge one, massive one. Yeah, Um, we'll probably come back to that if you like, but um, certainly then there's the negative gearing um, uh, changes and then there's the the reduction in the the discount rate for the capital gains tax. Now, um, unfortunately, and and I try not to... uh, get too political but um, uh, you know I've, I've certainly as I say been a, a, a critic of uh, all governments uh, in the last decade I think um, you know politics in this country is just a, a debacle it's a disgrace um, you know as I've said uh, several times you know politicians that we elect should be should be focused on the ball and not the man um, because it seems to be all about slinging mud at the other guys and uh, definitely and no strategic plan um, so certainly from a political point of view I think it would be a big year for the market um, I saw a, uh, one of our um, competitors today published a report that said if uh, the um, imputation credit refundability issue goes goes ahead and the ALP cancel the refundability of, of dividend imputation credits, that could have a 13% valuation impact on the banks. Yeah, I, I completely agree that that's, to me, from what I can see, I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest expert in the world, but that change to the imputation credit policy is going to have a greater effect than the negative gear policy change mm. for just just for mine because um, I just think that it's it's sort of there's this we've got how many self-managed super funds we've got like uh, it's about 600,000 80 percent are investing in in the shares yeah um, 50 percent of those are in refundable situations at least yeah probably more because your, your baby boomers are, are generally in refundable situations from age 55 onwards or something yeah um, I, I, I guess I guess my biggest um, issue is is the fact that um, you know the, the ALP mantra is these are taxes and extra um, uh, impact imposts against the wealthy and unfortunately um, the I don't believe that is the case. Not um, always, no. Yeah. In fact, uh, there was a Senate inquiry or parliamentary in, uh, inquiry that basically concluded that 95% of the people who receive uh, refunds of imputation credits earn less than $87,000 a year. Mm. Um, and at $87,000 a year, I'm sorry, that's not wealthy. Um, these are just everyday Australians that are basically mm. set themselves on a course um, to basically abide by the, the rules of the land as they as they are and suddenly there's a shift in those rules and it's a massive financial impact mm. um, I think probably um, you know there are self-managed super funds that receive um, ten thousand dollar annual refunds there's those that it's get 20 they, they get 40 they get 50 yeah. they get a hundred um, and that's probably a better way to approach it is to put some kind of a cap on the amount that can actually be refunded as opposed to saying everybody misses mm. out. Um, but um, and what, what the, other, the way I always look at these things too is that the rate of return on the investment now, now is different. Mm. So the rate of return on the investment is now different for a, a super fund than it is for an individual 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and it's purely because of those sort of changes that the, the return on investment for an individual earning a bugger all money all of a sudden is a lot less than somebody who's on, on a high rate of tax. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's absolutely the case. Uh, and, and these on the same yeah. dividends. The, this this change, I'm not sure about the the, the fairness or the uh, the equitable nature. I mean, basically, the dividend imputation system um, and the refundability of, of dividend imputation credits uh, is a recognition um, that company profits are taxed in the recipient's hands. Mm. So the company pays the tax. The individual gets the gets the credit for that, and if the individual pays no tax, then they get that tax that's been paid refunded. Um, you know, as I say, it's it's uh, it's it is an attack on not the wealthy; it's attack on um, the broad investment market. And you know, if um, that change goes through, there's there's certainly the negative gearing, which allegedly is also an attack on on the wealthy. Well, um, usually what uh, the, the negative gearing um, clients that we have are not generally wealthy. They're just everyday Aussie mm. battlers out there having a crack. Yeah, the negative gearing one will be an interesting thing because there's the, they're starting to draft up a bit of legislation around this and how how it could work in different circumstances so um, every client's going to be different when it comes to negative gearing um, that is for sure you're going to have some clients that are in business who will be able to offset investment uh, passive investment income with losses mm-hmm. so they won't be they they've been they're going to most likely be allowed to offset that type of scenario uh, whereas people that, that don't have that luxury will miss out so yeah, again, you're you're picking cherry picking the situation. Yeah, um, which is quite you know what about, and sort of it's and then it's even probably harder to pre- predict, Jeff. You know what's going to happen in five years' time and and the market. What's it going to look like in you know 2024? Yeah, in in, in five years' time, I, I guess the the easy way to to look at that is to say um, in simple terms, uh, the market will be up and the market will be down. Um, you know, if you if you take a look back at the last five years, um, you know certainly uh, the market went from about forty eight hundred through to six thousand. It came back to to, to fifty one hundred, um, ran through to sixty three hundred, and it's currently now sitting at about just below fifty eight hundred. So, you know, it's a pretty um, jagged, volatile kind of a journey. Um, and I don't think the next five years is going to be substantially different. Um, certainly, there will be changes in uh, new economy, old economy um, style um, changes. Now that some of that will be uh, technology, some of it will be new products and services. Um, some of the traditional businesses, um, you know, I, I don't think they'll they'll um, sort of. Uh, change substantially, uh, and by traditional I mean you know things like the the supermarkets and um, the everyday kind of products and services. Um, but I was listening to a fund manager um, about uh, three or four months ago, and they said uh, it's it's extraordinary how um, we overestimate uh, the technology changes in the next one to two years, and yet we still grossly overestimate. Uh, the changes in technology in the next decade. Um, so, you know, I guess that kind of 
points to us uh, expecting um, you know a lot to happen in the next decade um, but maybe it takes a bit longer than that so things like driverless cars and yeah. Ubers on call that uh, are drones and that sort of stuff yeah covered off on a couple of those types of things in in previous podcasts which is interesting that you mentioned that um, but yeah um, the other thing with them what was I was going to say so do you th- what's the sort of feeling on the ground with your clients at the moment is there a feeling that uh, things are good uh, obviously the, the the political games really must play with some of your clients mind that there's obviously conversations you would have with them which the political discussion comes into it and keeping an objective mind is must be can be I guess difficult to wade through some of those conversations that you have with your client any tips on what you sort of do to sort of you know ease a client's sort of uh, you know anxieties if, if there are anxieties and I'm sure there is from yeah, time to time look uh, again I think history is is the best guide I mean there's there's always going to be things happening in the in the markets um, in the economy in the world um, you know that uh, cause um, aggravation or some kind of uh, nervousness about the outlook um, but ultimately um, markets have a, a way of, of, of sifting through that um, you know many many people that say there's only two things that drive uh, markets one's greed and the other's fear um, at the moment you'd have to say we've just had a, a bit of a cycle of fear I, d- I don't count uh, the correction that we've had as too much more than a market correction um, so I think probably our outlook is for right now is actually pretty pretty good. Um, I think the market has uh, uh, either had a, uh, a very good relief rally um, with some some more negative correction style volatility to happen, uh, or we're, we're simply having um, what you would usually expect at the end of a correction, and that's a pretty healthy um, snap back and, and a reversal. Um, mm. You know, not too many client conversations happen at the moment, of course, without uh, the word uh, uh, Trump um, coming into them. And I think there's there's a whole stack of um, extraordinary things that are going on in the world where um, he's involved. So we'll just briefly touch on Trump. I don't want to sort of talk about him for too long, but the interesting thing about Trump, he's been in office, what, two years, is it? Uh, yes, he's been through his midterm. So yeah, so two years, um, and the market went pretty well for the you know obviously quite a quite a bit into that sort of tenure, and it's obviously starting to sort of do a few other things. But um, what do you think the market sort of initially reacted well to Trump? I think um, you know while the the rest of the world looks looks in and says uh, you know Trump's a bit of a bit of a lunatic, I think the Americans actually are still quite taken with him um, and believe in in him. It's it's most interesting that Trump was elected on the uh, 8th of October 2016, and the U.S. market has done nothing but go virtually in a in a, in a straight line up ever since. Uh, and that was until about uh, the end of end of August, when uh, the current correction started to take hold. Um, it's it's interesting, um, you know. If you listen to to the Don, he'll he'll tell you that um, you know he's making he said about making America great again. He's got great relationships with 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 Russia and with China and and with North Korea, and he's basically set around solving some of those global relation. Uh, relationship issues um, 
you know, I'm not sure that building a wall with Mexico is, is, is a great thing to do. It's certainly they're in a, a shutdown at the moment. The problem for Trump is, of course, he's now lost control of the, the Congress and they're basically giving a bit back to him. So um, yeah. he's got a bit of work to do in terms of anything that happens in the next um, mm. two years in the, in the lead up to the, the next election. So. I think he's going to want to stay on another four years too, from what we understand. Yeah, I believe that's what he's up to. But, you know, why as a 76-year-old you'd want to take on a four-year term as President of the United States, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. That's, yeah, he'd be pretty old. Mm. Um, yeah, so the other thing I wanted to... Obviously, we haven't discussed it all yet, um, which has been a big thing in 2018. Do you know what I'm going to talk about here now? Go on. The Hain Royal Commission. So yeah. the Hain Royal Commission... Um, really wrapped the banks over the knuckles financial planners got involved is obviously involved in that process as well uh, there's been a lot of stories that have come up um, financial advisors not doing the right thing banks not doing the right thing um, would how did this affect your business yeah look it's it's been an interesting journey there's no question I, I, I remember thinking back when the when the Royal Commission was announced that um, you know the banks in terms of the banking business um, don't have a lot to answer for they've, they've basically been providing banking services they probably haven't been um, um, as focused on their customers as they should have been they've been more focused on on their shareholders and profits and uh, and that's an unfortunate outcome um, most of the Royal Commission however didn't find too many banking um, license um, infringements. Most of the infringements came from uh, their integration into the financial advice, funds management, insurance world. Uh, I've certainly been a huge critic of of how they've they've um, compiled those businesses in the last decade. Um, and I've uh, any, most of my clients would probably uh, be able to describe what I call the swim channels. And that's where you walk into one of the big four banks and you see the teller and the teller is basically uh, responsible for six points of contact with the customer. One of those points of contact is uh, to get the client in front of a financial planner. Uh, the other five are basically get a transaction account, a credit card, a, a mortgage, um, some general insurance, etc. So packaging services is what they were Absolutely. doing, but they were just not doing it in the... Well, that, that's what the teller was responsible mm. for, and they were being remunerated for yep. achieving those six points of contact. And then the financial planner was basically focused on eight more points of contact. Um, and the better the, the financial planner in the bank was at keeping all of the, the client's wallet spend inside the bank, the better the planner mm. got remunerated. Mm. And that that, you know, just from a... Um, a vertical integration perspective um, is is wrong, and it's it's basically caused um, bad at, bad outcomes. Um, I know there was one uh, group that basically said um, we've got three levels of financial advice. If you if you basically come through the the bank teller and you land in the in the first one, well, they were capped out. They couldn't give you advice if you were worth more than a net fifty thousand um, dollars. The next level up was capped out at a net $250,000. So you had to go to the premium service if you had more than $250,000. Mm. So, um, and it was all about 
um, you know, squeezing as hard as you could to drive the revenue. So the only, I guess the only final thing on the Hain Royal Commission um, is that obviously that, is, that would have that's affected everybody um, in your industry, I, I believe. So from what I understand, and just is it true that you obviously the, the amount of paperwork that you're having to do uh, in more recent times has increased quite a bit as well? You've had to do like the, the, the whole process of doing a, mm-hmm. a, um, everything, I guess, more forms, more yeah. paperwork. Is that, the, is that what's happening? Absolutely, absolutely. Basically in um, uh, 2012, there was, there was a thing called the um, Future of Financial Advice or FOFA, um, which was pretty much a buzzword around uh, five, six, seven years ago. Uh, both leading into the introduction and the implementation because it was all supposed to happen uh, June 2012 and it ended up being implemented 12, 13 and 14. Um, Now most of what's come out of the Royal Commission uh, is um, I guess a failure to act um, by some of the the, the big banks and financial institutions to those changes in regulation. So they were things like um, best interest duty and uh, safe harbours and um, conflicted remuneration, um, that style of stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I, I kind of think, well, you know, how do you, how do you regulate best interest duty? And best interest duty basically says um, when I give advice to a client that I put the client's interests ahead of my own. Um, now, to me, that's a, that's a der Fred. Um, but it's now legislated, so that's that's a good thing. Um, certainly, since that time, um, um, there are now things like annual fee disclosures. Um, we need to contact fee-paying clients every two years um, for them to opt in, um, as opposed to um, um, basically being an automatic opt-in and, and them having to opt out. It's now an automatic opt-out and they have to basically opt-in and, and say, yes, I want the service to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a whole stack of technology changes that have been driven as a result of that. There's been a whole lot of um, extra compliance supervision. Uh, certainly from uh, a branch management perspective, I seem to spend a lot of time um, checking boxes and and um, uh, peer reviews and and making sure that um, me the and the team are, are basically doing everything that's uh, uh, legally required. Mm. Um, you know, we've certainly had, um, from my um, knowledge and experience, a very very active ASIC involvement. Um, we've probably um, you know doesn't seem to be the same experience that the banks have had. The banks have, from evidence presented at the Royal Commission, mm. it appears the banks have basically uh, been um, less than uh, forthcoming when mm. it comes to those ASIC inter- inter- interactions. Okay, we'll, mo- we'll move on a little bit. Um, so obviously you're you're a, one of the founding members, I think, of the Brisbane uh, Airport Rotary Club. Yep. That's right. Uh, is that the f- was that the first time you sort of got involved in Rotary or or um, service uh, organisations or tell it, us a bit of history if there is yeah, prior to that. It, it actually was my first involvement in, uh, in in Rotary, and I did listen to uh, Dennis, who's, who's another one of the uh, airport Rotary uh, members, um, 
the other in in his podcast back in November, I think it was. Um, so certainly, um, my chiropractor actually um, said to me uh, one day, we're, we're forming a bit of a networking club out at the airport. Um, you know, business networking and. Uh, um, you should come along for breakfast. So I went along for breakfast and uh, lo and behold, it turned into a Rotary Club and uh, I've been going ever since. And um, like Dennis, um, I actually suggested to Dennis, um, I was that friend that suggested to him that he should come along to a business networking uh, group and um, he's been coming along ever since. Um, it's, it's just one of those um, things that I think, you know, if you if you've got the time and bear in mind my kids are all sort of in their in their 20s plus now um got that bit of spare time um and it's great to be involved in a community organization that gives some back in terms of the history um it wasn't until i'd actually joined that i i um figured out that my grandfather was was a uh, a rotarian at uh, elstonwick down in in uh, melbourne uh, for many years um my uncle has been um, a Rotarian at the Rotary Club of Manningham, which is uh, near Doncaster. Uh, he's been in that for many, many years. And uh, um, I'd also discovered that my brother was in, in uh, the Rotary Club of uh, Surface Paradise for a couple of years before me. So um, yeah, I, I guess it's something of a family tr tradition that I was unaware of. <laughs> really busy lives, and sometimes these things don't come up, I guess, eh? in uh, family conversations. But... Um yeah, so, and the other thing of that, uh, you know, you obviously in this part of uh, Brisbane and the north side here, um, you know, you're involved in some networking groups, um, the Kedron Brook Business Group, uh, going to most of those breakfasts throughout the year. Um, and, you'll, and I remember you used to run an economic breakfast as well. Uh, that was uh, not that long ago. So you do enjoy networking. Um and it's, it's about sort of just meeting people and getting out there. And is that something you, what was your networking like, you know, prior to 10 years ago? Yeah, look, I, prior to, to moving to the, the suburbs, I think, um, you know, I had a, a different uh, network. As I say, I was, I was in a wholesale relationship. Um, mm. So most of my customers were actually people just like me. Now, if, uh, when I migrated out of, out of the uh, city head office and, um, turned um, a part-time advising role into a, into a full-time one. I needed some more, more customers. Um, and it was obvious that my existing uh, network uh, wasn't going to be a, a, a great source for those new customers. So one of the first places I went was the Brisbane North Chamber of Commerce um, and then ended up um, at the Rotary Club, ended up at... Um, uh, the Kedron Brook uh, Business Group. Um, there's a couple of other things that I did. Certainly, the the Morgan's Business Breakfast, which was very successful, but uh, uh, unfortunately just got too busy to mm. to keep that going. And there was a couple of other issues that we had as well. So uh, that kind of took a break. I uh, I actually planned to get that rolling again in 2018, but uh, I haven't quite uh, managed. So maybe it's a it's a, a to do list for uh, 2019. Yes. Yeah, so Okay, we're talking about 2019. Uh, is there anything big coming up for you this year? Uh, any travelling anywhere in particular? Is there any particular big events, goals, or anything like that that's happening for you in two, 2019, well, the year of confidence? Yeah, the year of confidence. The uh, 2018 was actually a big year for, for me. I, I actually ended up at uh, the Hong Kong Sevens with uh, my tennis mates. Um, and... 
Um, then my wife and I basically embarked on our first uh, UK-European trip. So we did that for a month and managed to visit our son in Edinburgh um, for, for a couple of days, which was, was fantastic. So 2019, um, it kicks off in a couple of weeks. So off to Perth for five days for a wedding, which will be good. Um, the, uh, the Hong Kong trip from last year, the boys were pretty keen to go and do another trip. So we've actually booked a, uh, a, uh, a Rugby World Cup trip to uh, Thailand. Um, and that worked reasonably well while we were booking it until my wife found out that the Rugby World Cup's actually in Japan. Um, is it on in October again? Yeah, or it's in it October. Yeah. yeah. So um, we've actually picked a weekend where there's ten games, uh, ten um, pool matches uh, that we can watch on the weekend, and we thought we'd go to Thailand because it's in a much better time zone. So those late evening games turn into early afternoon ones. Mm. Um, and then lo and behold, there's there's now talk of uh, getting the, the Hong Kong Sevens team back together for April as well, but I don't know that that's going to come off. And um, the other thing that's happening is my, my son, who's living in London now, might uh, come home and visit in March. But uh, I did give my wife a, a Christmas present that was a voucher for uh, a trip to Hawaii sometime this year. So Have you been to Hawaii before? or Yeah, we, we actually had our honeymoon there Um all those years ago and mm. we actually went back for our 25th wedding anniversary um, a couple of years back so mm. um, we've had done a couple of transits there as well so it is a favorite mm. excellent no um, what about what other any sort of other uh, room for any other hobbies in your life then at the moment I know it's a fairly busy life still with what's going on um, you know in rotary work and family yeah. and that sort of thing but is there anything else you get up to yeah look I've, I've, I've kind of gone in um, in decades, I was talking to Paul the other day. Um, he and we, we were chatting, and um, Nutter, yeah, Paul yeah. Nutter, yeah, yeah so. Um, yeah. And um, I said, My life has gone kind of gone in decades. I, I spent a decade playing golf, um, and uh, I kind of uh, got drawn away from that by uh, um, some interest in some horses, uh, as in race horses. So, um, Went through the ownership ranks there, which was quite an exciting time, but uh, got sick of that and uh, bought myself a boat. Uh, had that for about uh, seven years and sold the boat and bought a caravan. So now it's just the wife and I. So we just basically hitch up and travel away for a weekend when we can. Yeah, I suppose so. if you've got a caravan, there's, there's all, it's a big country to explore, mate. Go out there and have a look. That's what my dad's been doing the last three years. He's yeah. been retired that long, I think. Yeah. He's... Um, he's uh, been out and spent a lot of time in WA it's definitely a different place out that way yeah well I'm probably a grey nomad in 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 training so yeah well uh, still a little bit to get there I guess yeah absolutely absolutely we did did just spend um uh, four days up in uh, Yapoon which was Mm. which was good with the caravan on the back so is is retirement something you're looking forward to yourself or is it uh is it something where you get, you're going to sort of say, well, I want to keep busy, I want to keep utilising my brain power and keep keep sort of active and busy? Yeah, it's 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 a, a really interesting question. Um, probably um, once you once you're in this this job, and I, I'd have to say it's a it's a it's a job I, I love, I'm passionate about, and I, I really do enjoy. Um, you know, there's probably more um, old stockbrokers around than there are in any other profession. Um, I'd love to to basically, you know, continue on and and you know maybe wind it back from you know um, ten days a, a fortnight to to nine to eight and 
probably two days to, a week. To, to six and to four. But, um, you know, there, there is some pretty substantial industry changes coming, like I mentioned before, that, um, um, you know, could put the squeeze on, um, you know, in terms of having to be degree qualified or, or equivalent. And uh, although we've got now less than five years to, to get there and we still don't know the, the journey or the pathway. So, um, that will be a big big determinant as to, to what happens from there. Okay. Two final things. Um, is there, I guess, what's your advice to the industry in the future? How's it going to survive uh, in the future, do you think? And um, what sort of, who are the right sort of people uh, coming up from the, the, I guess, the younger generations that really fit into the mold of, of of the industry and will and in your opinion will probably hold it in good stead yeah another another really interesting question so um under these um education standard changes that um are coming in five years time for all existing advisors um from the first of january 2019 i can no longer employ a new authorized representative and that's somebody to give clients advice uh, unless they have completed a three-year um, degree in financial planning. Three years ago, that degree didn't exist, so it's a pretty difficult recruitment process for me right now. Um, most of the, the students in that degree um, will be basically fully qualified with a degree at the age of 21. And as a said to uh, Trevor Evans and, and others, it's uh, pretty difficult to put a 21-year-old in front of a 65-year-old uh, to give retirement advice. So that's, that's going to be a real challenge for the next five years is where do these new advisors come from? Because there's, there's a generation Y is going to have to get sort their shit out, I think. Well, you know, that's, that's certainly um, an emerging problem. Um, mm. Unfortunately, most of the um, uh, the high revenue clients from an advice point of view do come from the 50 plus kind mm. of age bracket. So that's where the money is. Mm. Um, and yet, they're not willing to take um, advice from millennials. Mm. Um, and that's fair enough too. I mean, you know, what do you want from your, your financial advisor? You want mm. someone who's old and wise and experienced and mm. um, you know been around the block and knows what could jump out of the forest and, and bite so mm. um, that, that that's a real challenge for the industry going forward yeah apart from the obvious um, with uh, with this you know what needs to be fixed as far as uh, federal politics is concerned any other advice for those people <laughs> play the play the ball and not the man. Um, yes, yeah, it, it, it's pretty simple. It's uh, you know get on and do good things and and listen to the listen to the the people and uh, and I guess my biggest criticism at the moment has been you know we just seem to be in this this never ending state of um, change protect of leaders yeah but protect the consumer um, mm. so we've had the banking royal commission we've now got an aged care royal commission we've just had a parliamentary inquiry into uh, the franchising system mm. um, we've got somebody else that's basically having a crack at um, you know some other part of the industry we're about to um, well, the ALP, I see Tanya Plibergé is now saying, well, our teachers aren't well experienced or aren't well educated enough to take on teaching degrees. They need to be 
basically OP um, 13 or better and uh, I just kind of wonder where all that's going. I mean, it, it, it kind of feels like we're, we're edging ourselves into a situation where the consumer can make any decision they like and then be subject to complete cooling off um, mm-hmm. after 30 days and, yep. and then basically um, um, ask for their, a full refund um, you know, for the life of the product, um, which is probably a bit anti-competitive. Yeah, two things with teaching, not enough good te- not enough teachers anyway probably. Um, you see a lot of people get in and it doesn't work for them, they get out and then they've got to replace you, they're trying to go into some other career. Um, and then being relevant for 2019, you know, the teaching style is it outdated. Yeah, so the, mm. the two challenges there, I think, that are mm. huge challenges. Um, for that industry is, is getting the right numbers uh, and getting getting it right before saying okay well that, then if you if you if you don't sort of cut the mustard and even though you might be good enough but you you know you're, not, you're cutting the mustard because of an OP score then you're really making it harder for the teachers I think yeah. making it harder for them to do a good job yeah absolutely um, and then yes. we've got the um, the, the Productivity Commissioner with their um, thousand page report being released yesterday onto into superannuation, which um, mm. which well, sort uh, of read glimpses about what's going on here. Yeah, so they basically want to publish the the list of the the top, top ten, ten top ten, which which would to me would be anti competitive. Very um, anti competitive. But um, there was some good news. the number of funds. Oh, absolutely. And how would you distinguish? You know what's what? Yeah. Who's who in the zoo? Just because there's there might be a thousand funds and you, you what you have to baseline ten. I yeah. mean, yeah, it 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 just seems like um, some extraordinary stuff. Obviously, I haven't read it, but um, you know, a thousand pages in twenty four hours seems like uh, you know pretty interesting stuff. Um, but I think you know anything that's in that will be largely dictated by the Banking Royal Commission. Mm. Um, the other good news potentially is the the idea that's been put forward, and it was only uh, in the last uh, couple of days that. Um, every superannuation uh, fund provider um, being required to show a single line of um, costs of running their fund. Um, so that includes the, 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 the direct cost, the member fees, the and the underlying costs, so the indirect costs of um, management expense ratios and, and the like, all folded into a single number, which would... Uh, probably give a few people a, a bit of a fright in mm. terms of their superannuation so yeah. uh, I think that's uh, we'll have to probably wrap this up uh, Jeff we've sort of had about an hour but um, um, we did a, we probably redid a bit too so it's uh, no it's been really informative I think that's that's some really good information and it gives it gives us a bit of an idea where you've come from your experiences some really good advice there. I really appreciate your time here on a Friday afternoon. Um, I hope you don't have to do too much more work uh, until the weekend. Um, thank you very much, Jeff. That's been great, and I'll get this up uh, loaded. That's been from the Valley Podcast. So thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Thanks. Um, Brisbane Business Life, definitely all business talk today. Um, thank you very much, everybody, and we'll uh, talk to you, talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thanks.